Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Want more Gators Breakdown? Join Gators Breakdown Plus. Starting at $3 a month. Get access to unique episodes, plus a blog, chat room, giveaways, shoutouts, and more. Gators Breakdown Plus is furthering the interaction with fans and listeners like you. Head to GatorsBreakdown.SupportingCast.FM to join Gators Breakdown Plus today. Gators Breakdown. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Join me right here, co-host Will Miles. You can find him at a site, readandreaction.com, and on Twitter at WillMilesSEC. Will, one week from tonight, we will be... Game week versus Utah. We've been counting it down. Big game for the Gators. We'll get into a little bit of schedule talk uh, this episode as well. But counting down the days within two weeks of the game. You're busy. I'm busy. We're running late. I can't make a graphic to save my life right now. Uh, so, I, well, I don't know. This is some, some weird things happening. But, hey, we, we, we got some football to talk about. You don't want to talk about recruiting? <laughs> <laughs> Next question. I can't, man. This, Next question. Next question. It's not that season anymore, so at least not for us. So, uh, no, nah, it's exciting, right? I mean, obviously, the, the Dan Mullen era ends in a thud. The Billy Napier era is upon us. I think there's a lot of good things going on within the program. We've seen, obviously, the Heavener, uh, the Heavener Center open up. We've seen the excitement around recruiting. And now it's time to get some excitement around the football, right, and the product on the field. I think – We've been talking for a while about how's Napier's offense going to going to jive. What's how's Anthony Richardson going to look within that offense? Who in the world are they going to have to play tight end? Who's going to play defensive line? All those different questions we've been talking about all off season long. Um, you know, we're starting to get some answers to that, both from the camp, but then also as these games progress, we're going to get some answers to that as well. Football season's interesting. It's just it's it's a it's a roller coaster ride. A lot like you know you always post the roller coaster gift mm-hmm. when it comes to recruiting. But the football season's kind of like that. You know, I mean it's it's you start out three and zero or something like that, and everybody's on a really big high, and then you know, there's a couple of big losses in the middle of the year. Everybody comes down, or hopefully there aren't any of those. But you know, obviously, it's just a ride, right? It's a journey. You want to see the improvement. You want to see sort of what's going on, and and this is our opportunity to really sort of the lights are coming on. And we're going to get to see what's going on both in camp and as the season starts. So I can't wait. Um, we'll be there, obviously, for that Utah game with about ninety, what three thousand of our uh, of our friends. And uh, you know, it'll be seven o'clock, so all of our friends and ourselves probably will be a little bit looped up. And uh, <laughs> it's time, man. It's that time of year. 
Now, you, you bring up a good point. Well, I didn't never, I never thought about it. I mean, I think I have, and we'll get into some schedule talk, but to kind of maybe preview it, talk about roller coasters, man, in, in coaches' first seasons. Go back to Mullen, and you had the early loss to Kentucky, and then by the season's end, Florida's a top-10 team, beating Michigan in a bowl game. Uh, go back to Jim McElwain's first year, and, oh, boy, the Will Greer situation and <laughs> everything that comes along with that, and just some some big wins versus Ole Miss in the middle of the season. Uh Tennessee as well early in the season and throw it at the end of the season by FSU and getting your brains beat in by Alabama and Atlanta. Go back to Urban Meyer and the, the, some, the big Tennessee win to kind of kickstart his career and then Alabama kicks your brains in <laughs> a few weeks later. Well, and then, and then having to go in like a go in like lockdown during the bye week to figure out what to do with Georgia, and yeah, come out with a fullback, like all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I mean, first like, I mean, for I, these first seasons we're talking, about, I mean, there, there's some some roller coasters there. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's part and parcel to it, right? I mean, yeah. there's a reason the previous guy got fired. And, you know, some of it is his doing. Some of it is his personnel. Some of it is scheme. And some of it is just general overall attitude and process within the program. But what that means is the new guy is is figuring out who has bought in, figuring out who is not, figuring out who can do what, um, figuring out how to get the most out of the guys that he's got. And you're going to have those ups and downs. And, you know, I mean, geez, you think about the Mullen roller coaster and – you know, Felipe Franks throws that ball that gets tipped up in the air on the errant snap against South Carolina. And that's kind of the turning point of that game. And that, all of a sudden, Florida can't lose. That game itself and, was the, uh, the roller, roller coaster. I mean, I just remember the snap flying over his head, and I started cackling like this team is going to go seven. You know, I think we're, I mean, I, I think it was legit they'd be under 500 if they lost that game and weren't able to really turn it around. And all of a sudden, just a, a flip, you know, a switch flipped. And the team's going out there boat race in Michigan. So, you know, in terms of – so that's the thing, right, is I'm really excited for Utah. I think we're going to learn a ton. I think there's going to be obviously a lot of hype for the, over the next couple of weeks as we as we look at that. I think it's a great measuring stick for the program. However, what I would caution people on is that because of a new program, because of all the different things that are new – Utah is not going to make or break the season, just like any non-conference loss isn't going to make or break the season. The season isn't going to be judged by a national championship, which means you know this game is great from a measuring stick and for the fans, but it's not really necessary. Your goals are still in front of you, even if you lose this game. So go out, put out a good showing, take some risks. You know, let let Utah cramp up in the heat in the third and fourth quarter, and uh, you know, put it all out there and and see what you can get. And I think I think we'll get that. I mean, the the one thing you can say about Napier is the scared money don't make money stuff is you know he's a genuine guy, and so if that's his attitude, then I expect Florida to go out there, let it all hang out, and they're not going to lose because they're being too tentative. They're going to lose because Utah beats them, and and that's how you want it to be. Absolutely. So we got plenty to get into. We'll look at the schedule just a little bit. I know we've kind of done that throughout the offseason, but one more look at the schedule. Some things have happened kind of uh, as ball camp has played out. So some things to look at the schedule before we you know, really get into Utah next week. Uh, we'll take a look back at this past weekend's scrimmage as well. A lot of nicks and bruises there for the Gators as long as the injury front doesn't seem anything Anything is too serious, uh, except maybe backup quarterback. So we'll get into that. We'll quickly go through that, but plenty to get into uh, on this episode of Gators Breakdown. Uh, but, you know, before we do, definitely 
hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. A lot of you watching on YouTube right now, these live streams are getting more popular as the season approaches. So definitely can tell the excitement is out there, Will, uh, with the Gator fan base. So hit that subscribe button, get those notifications when we go live on Gators Breakdown. And check us out at the home of Gators Breakdown, news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. And big congrats to, uh, I hope I'm saying his last name right, Tim Ducat. He won the tickets to the uh, Utah uh, game for uh, he won the giveaway Gators Breakdown Plus giveaways. So I uh, messaged him. Uh, he he emailed back, claimed the tickets. He was in here in the YouTube chat just a few minutes ago as well. So big congrats to Tim right there. Hope to see him in Gainesville uh, a couple Saturdays from now. So all right, let's get into it. Will let's hear from Billy Napier and his thoughts on the Gators second scrimmage this fall. There's a lot of good on the tape, but obviously a lot of things that we need to. Uh, work on areas that we need to improve. Um, you know, just overall defensively, I think more consistency across the board. Um, I thought we maybe didn't have one of our better tackling days. I thought we tackled really well last week and then um, hasn't been much of an issue throughout, but, you know, more missed tackles than we'd like. And then I think we just sort of focus on gap integrity. I think that starts with alignment. Sometimes that's a simple thing that gets overlooked. Uh, but being aligned correctly up front at the second level, playing with the correct leverage in the back end. And then, you know, just in general, the zone fits, the gap fits. Uh, all these things will be imperative as we approach the opener. And then offensively, I think just another level of detail is out there. And I think that goes with the amount of um, – we're carrying a lot right now, you know, so the volume of things, the concepts, formations, whatever the case may be. But as we narrow it down, we're going to need to improve our detail. I think the perimeter play needs to improve, um, you know, tight ends on the edges, the receivers, not only in the run game, but all the perimeter concepts. And then situationally, I think missed some opportunities in the red area. You know, I thought we had some chances to really break it open and we didn't do that. That's an area two weeks in a row where we could be better. And I think special teams wise, we need to continue to get better specialist play. Um, and then obviously we're working on developing a two deep here. Who are our four core players? You know, we had conversation this morning about if we were to play on the road right now, who would be the 70 players that would make the bus, right? So, and I think special teams affects that. Um, and we all understand that special teams is about one-on-one -on -one battles. Um, and I think that we got to win more of those, right? And when you're going against each other, I think there's good and bad there, right? So we were much improved offensively in particular. Now it's twofold, right? You want your defense to create takeaways. Uh, but we didn't turn it over on offense until the last play of the scrimmage in a two-minute situation. And then uh, we played, I think we had four tech, what I would call technical penalties. Um, and then, you know, we kind of minimized. I think we had one undisciplined penalty. So that's an area where I thought we took a step forward. It was pretty clean. Um, we had a full SEC official crew there to officiate, which I thought was they not only – we had a little um, kind of an instructional session, educational session uh, with them as our team speaker on Friday. Uh, they were at practice the entire day Friday. They sat in meetings Friday. 
and then they officiated the scrimmage for us and called it just like they would call it on game day. So I think we benefited from that two-day period. All right, Will, so some good, some bad there, but let's start with the offense rebounding, turnovers being minimized. Of course, I think was there something we didn't want to hear in the second scrimmage. It was, all right, well, the offense is still turning the ball over because, look, we go back to last year, and there were some consistencies that we were hearing in fall camp, and a lot of it had to do with struggling at quarterback, Henry Jones struggling, scrimmage one, scrimmage two, scrimmage three, and then we saw that play out during the season. So I definitely didn't want to hear in scrimmage two that there were turnovers again uh, because it does seem all right well check check one thing off the the mark that you want to see improvement so turnovers minimized offense rebounds there takes care of the ball good to hear penalties were not really an issue either uh they have been an issue at points uh in, in fall camp you would expect it you're going to have some up and down days uh but we had been told and heard there was some penalty issues uh throughout fall camp so big rebound nice rebound uh, there we can kind of get into it at the same time, but you got to take the good with the bad. Red zone struggles. Now this is something we <laughs> that is bleeding over from the first scrimmage to the second scrimmage. Uh, but we'll we'll we'll, we'll go there next. But let's uh, concentrate on the good now. Anthony Richardson taking care of the football. He did have a couple of turnovers in that first scrimmage. As I said, one was a tip pass. Don't really have much details. Quarterback can still be blamed a little bit for a, a tipped interception, uh, but it does seem like he rebounded, took care of the football in the second scrimmage. Yeah, I mean, I think when when you look at what Napier's saying, he's saying they're making progress, right? And that, that's the thing you're looking for is, are they making progress? So you've got a real efficient crew in there. You're just making technical mistakes. You're not making procedural mistakes. You're not doing, you know, mental mistakes really is what he's what he's boiling down to. When you think about turning the ball over, that's what that is, right? Those are typically mental mistakes. You throw it to the wrong receiver. You make the wrong read. Even if the ball gets tipped, you know, you, the offensive line, were they supposed to cut the defensive line? They didn't cut them, and so the guy got his hands up and the ball got tipped. All those sorts of things tend to be mental mistakes. Again, <clears throat> the place where he sort of where he sort of pointed out the mental mistakes was on the defensive side of the ball, right? Mm-hmm. Just getting everybody on the same page, everybody up to speed. But look, I mean, I think the offense, we all expect it to be explosive. The question is going to be, can it be consistent? And and that's the, that's the thing is that if Anthony Richardson and that offense are able to be consistent and move down, move the ball down the field, then they're going to score. And it's just a question of if they turn the ball over too much, if they miss guys who are open, if they rely on being explosive, then they'll be explosive but not consistent. And so when you get up against a good defense that's going to force you to be consistent to go down the field, you're going to struggle. And and that's what they're working on right now. So, look, I mean, I think based on what we've heard so far, you know, against teams like Vanderbilt, Missouri, and South Carolina and stuff like that, I'm going to be confident that the offense is going to be successful. The place where I think we're going to start to really see it is against, uh, you know, get start out that way, right? We get to start out with Utah and Kentucky. I mean, Kentucky last year shut Florida down pretty much completely in that game up in Lexington, and so we'll see what happens real early on with this offense. But, yeah, I mean, it's great to hear, right, that they've made some corrections, that they have course-corrected, and that you have the – the SEC crew in makes me feel comfortable that the disciplinary penalties, look, it's things that are going to be called throughout the year, and they didn't have a bunch of stupid things called. And so just from the standpoint of you know, the frustration that we might see watching them, I think that'll go – the temperature will go down in the room in the Miles household, that's for sure, if we don't have eight false start penalties that first couple of games. <laughs> Absolutely. And there was some um, – I know some practice notes out there going around too, and some had said it may have been a more – Penalty riddled scrimmage, but 
Napier didn't seem to, and he's been pretty forthcoming, I believe, uh, from what we've been able to hear in these press conferences. I mean, he's told us one time <laughs> when penalties were an issue, so I don't see why he would gloss over it this time. So I'll take him for his word for it right there. Uh, take him for his word also, Will. He brings it up again, red zone struggles, and after last year, yeah, <laughs> it's Florida, you know, that's definitely one area Florida needs to get better in. 45th in red zone efficiency last season were the Gators, 86.3%. Not terrible, but, you know, when you factor in the close games and the turnovers in the red zone, difference makers, those caused some losses right there for the Gators in those close games. So, look, more close games this season, of course. I think we all expect it. You'd like to see better red zone performance. Cut, just cutting down turnovers in that area would be an improvement, but need to capitalize on the chances, Will, uh, that make a difference. If we go back a year ago, I wanted to look it up. Anthony Richardson last year, 6-7 for 49 yards, three passing touchdowns, two first downs, no interceptions, five rushing attempts, one touchdown. That was very limited red zone interaction there for Anthony Richardson. So there... I mean, just very limited basis, really good stats there from Anthony Richardson in the red zone. And looked like an area, too, um, that going back, Billy Napier, Louisiana, had some success, too. Did have some issues with field goal kicking <laughs> there at Louisiana. Uh, but all in all, pretty good performance in the red zone at his previous stop. But it was an issue a bit last year, uh, Will, but seems to be continuing right now in these two, first two scrimmages. Yeah, I, I tend not to get all that worried about red zone performance. I think that, that it does not correlate much with points scored, which is kind of an interesting thing to say. But when you plot red zone percent or even when you slot touch spot even when you plot um touchdown percentage versus points scored, um, you know, you it even when you start to adjust for opportunities, it comes a little bit more in line. But really, the things you want to look at are the efficiency metrics, things like yards per play, things like EPA, um, expected points added when you start looking at um, you know what an offense can really be. And Florida really was a pretty good offense last year in terms of EPA. Now you start to look at that and go, well, why was it then that they didn't put up the same kind of scoring? And, and it wasn't efficiency in the red zone. It was turnovers in the red zone. It was Emory Jones throwing into triple coverage and getting, uh, getting interceptions when they were down in that range it was anthony richardson i mean you know if you think about the when he went out with the injury um, or a couple of different times he went out with injuries and then the drive stalled in the red zone with emory jones their quarterback um and then not being able to run the ball late in the season when they got down in the red zone in a couple of those games and that was sort of the, the and, story and just and just not running the ball <laughs> well that's true so but i mean look i, I think i think the 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 point is is that Napier's never going to be pleased with how they execute in the red zone because every coach wants to come away with seven when you're down there. But the reality is, is that the there is the correlation between red zone performance and point scoring, as weird as this sounds, is not really all that strong. And so if you had to work on explosive plays versus red zone efficiency, if you told me you have to take a trade-off, I would take explosive plays any day of the week. Oh, you know because, I, you know I am. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's the thing, right? So when someone says, oh, our red zone efficiency could be better, if they're doing things correctly, that means they've already, they're already comfortable with the way the offense is running 20 to 20. Right, they've gotten to the point where they're comfortable there, and now we're sort of fine-tuning things in the red zone. Now, you know, I mean, take 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 Richardson's um, LSU game performance last year. Explosive big plays for touchdowns, and I think the one touchdown run was in the red zone. But you know, it was explosive big plays. How Florida was scoring points. 
Yeah. Well, and and if you look at even the trash gear in 2020, yeah. they they weren't they weren't you know nickel and diamond their way down the field and then scoring from the three every time. I mean, sometimes they did, right? But most of the time it was a 30 yard pass to Pitts or he hit Tony who took it the rest of the way. And those sorts of explosive plays are the are the hallmark of an excellent offense. Because if you have to go down the field every time, you're going to eventually make a mistake. You can have a 14-play drive, but if you rely on 14-play drives, you're going to be an anemic offense. And so I get it. I understand that people want to hear about efficiency in the red zone because it makes sense, right? Scoring seven instead of three, obviously a very, very positive thing. However, you can field goal another team to death if you're down there 13 times in a game, right? So, so, um, getting it in is is going to happen if you're having explosive plays just because the defense won't catch you but that's more important so again napier knows that he's not stupid he's got his whole chart where he's looking at where what plays they're running at different areas of the field and so he's looking at it and saying in terms of efficiency like inside the 20 we're not running the plays exactly the way i want to right now but what that should mean is that from 30 yards out and 40 yards out and 50 yards out and 60 yards out, he's comfortable with the way they're running things because otherwise there's not a whole lot of sense in working on it from 20 yards in because really it's more important to be explosive than it is to be efficient in the red zone. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, well, uh, one note from Gaines Vegas on the Gator Collective message board. He shared some notes from the scrimmage as well, and he he did say, I would say the offense won this scrimmage while the defense won the first one. And we probably have to go to a few things Napier said there. Trouble tackling, gap integrity, lining up. Boy, don't that sound uh, ugly familiar <laughs> from, from from past defense there. And I don't think too alarming. This is about the you know first time we're hearing, for, at least from Napier, with some of those issues there. Now, of course, some of this is because they were on the football field. They were scrimmaging. You're going to uh, get these um, – you're going to get some of these performances like this. Would you like to hear them? Absolutely not. But, you know, not everything's going to be perfect. Not everything's going to be rosy. And, hey, Billy Napier's at least sharing with us. This is the, the areas that we can get better in. But, you know, these are some of the issues that were – some past issues under under uh, Todd Grantham and, and the last staff. So uh, tackling I've, I have been hearing as, as a whole is much better. I don't not going to get too worked up uh, about you know trouble tackling in in, in a scrimmage. You got to give some offensive players some credit there too for being able to break tackles. Now this is something we don't want to hear consistently, and something that when Florida plays Utah and Florida plays Kentucky, they're going to have to tackle with those styles of play uh, there uh, for those two teams there. But anything. I mean, of course, we'll, we're not seeing it ourselves, so we're, we don't know how big of an issue uh, this is. But it is important enough for Billy Napier to bring up. Well, this is the one that actually concerns me, I think, out of anything that was said today or yesterday, is that if, if Napier's talking about gap integrity, this practice or this scrimmage, well, we know that Florida busted a bunch of explosive plays on the running game in the first scrimmage. So that sort of suggests that gap integrity might have been an issue there in the first practice, too. You don't bust 
you know, 30, 40, 50 yard runs without somebody being out of position most of the time. I mean, you can block something perfectly, but that's kind of rare. Usually it requires the defense kind of helping you out. And when you factor, when you combine that with the fact that the defensive line, I think, is the space where everyone recognizes there's the most amount of worry when it comes to the defensive side of the ball, it does make you take a pause and say, hey, you know, is, is, is this an issue? You know, is, is the defensive line getting pushed around? And is that causing linebackers to maybe start to jump out of their gaps? Because that's what happened last year. I mean, what happened last year is nobody up front trusted each other, which meant that you had a defensive end who tried to go too fast around the edge and you could pop a draw in behind him. Or you had a linebacker who wasn't willing to take the pulling guard on and tried to sidestep him, which meant that the safety was left in a really awkward one-on-one position. Like Those are the things that happen if everybody's not doing their job. So when Napier says everybody needs to get on the same page on the defensive side of the ball – I suspect that's what that's code for, right? That everyone has to do their job. It's not It's not the linebacker's job to cover for the safety. It's not the safety's job to cover for a defensive lineman. It's not the defensive end's job to cover for the defensive tackle, that they're going to have to do their job. And you have to teach that out of them because last year that was the way they played, right? And, and irrespective of whether you want to blame that on Todd Grantham or whether you want to blame that on a lack of discipline for the players or whether you want to blame it on Dan Mullen or whoever you want to blame it on, that was the reality is that when you watch that defense, there were guys out there who were trying to do more than their job and that got them out of position, which meant that you know you could run 30 straight, 30 straight counters and, and gash them because – there just there wasn't a discipline and a nobody was on the same page. So the fact that Napier's saying that, the fact that this is kind of two practices in a row where there've been some big runs, that does concern me a little bit. But again, I don't really expect Florida to be all that good against the run this year anyway. I mean, I think if you look at the defense, the place you're gonna you hope that they improve to be not awful against the run. Like I think if you just said we're gonna be average against the run this year, you're you're inching up towards a top 20 defense then at that point with the way the secondary played last year. And so that's probably the goal. You're not going to have Georgia. You're not going to have a Georgia performance up front against the run, right? I mean, there is no, (laughs) there, there aren't going to be eight guys drafted off this team next year. (laughs) So the expectations of taking that giant leap, I think are probably misplaced. But again, if you can get everybody doing their job on the same page, you can get better gap integrity and whether or not the linebacker gets run over is, is irrelevant as long as he's in the right spot it allows the safety come up to come up and clean up the mess as opposed to if you give the running back a running start at the safety he's going to go for 50 yards so um, that's kind of what i read into those comments maybe that's reading a little bit too much into it but that would be my concern and i'm way more concerned about that than i am about any comments about the red zone offense yeah and you hope at the same time that it means Florida's got some really good running backs. <laughs> so uh, for um, Gaines Vegas and the Gator Collective message board did say, you know, Richardson had a, a nice run. Lingard scored 15 yards out, uh, had a couple more 10-plus yard runs. ETN scored on a 10-plus yard run. Montreal Johnson had a couple of breakout runs. So as we said, the running game has – in two scrimmages now where you're hearing some big plays uh, from the run game, which, you know, is music to my ears, but at the same time um, against this Florida defense and where they struggled last year, we'd like to see some improvements. But that's the beauty of scrimmages. We just got to kind of wait and see what it looks like on the field because one good side, one ball, one side of the ball does good. That means the other side of the ball does bad since you're playing yourselves. Um Will's another thing, perimeter play, and then we'll kind of move on a bit. But, well, actually, we can blend it in um, because perimeter play, In he, he was mentioning wide receivers, tight ends for this offense. But I think we have to point out there, 
and we'll transition to injuries a little bit. No Justin Shorter. Of course, no Ricky Pearsall as well. So missing two of your top three receivers there in the last scrimmage. Uh, so that probably can play a, a bit into it as well. But I do, I do think we could probably start our injury conversation there. No Jack Miller, of course. We'll get into that just a bit. No Justin Shorter. No Ricky Pearsall. Ethan White, Jason Marshall, Devin Moore, uh, Jadon Hill, of course. Um, we don't know when he'll be back. Amari Bernie, Antoine Powell, all those guys uh, missing practice. Doesn't seem anything too serious, except, of course, we knew, do know Jack Miller will be out now for the first couple of games of the season. Uh, and Jaden Hill, probably some time before he's back as well. Uh, so, Will, not, doesn't seem too serious. Dings, maybe just normal fall camps, bumps and bruises. It does sound like we'll get back. Justin Shorter soon, Pearsall soon, Jason Marshall soon. But with this transition going on, you'd like to have those guys out there as much as possible. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously you'd like those guys to be getting all the reps that you can. I think for a guy like uh, a guy like Marshall, who played a ton last year and plays a position where, especially if you're going to be playing a lot of man-on-man, it's more technique-based than it is really – you don't need to know every single – portion of the scheme to be effective yeah. as a corner if you're gonna be playing a bunch of man and man. uh yeah and his is a minor hamstring so there's you know basically trying to get it ready well and that, but that is one of those things right i mean ar ends up with a with a minor hamstring last year and he's missing a few games and so um uh, you know those injuries can linger and obviously you want to make sure you take care of that and keep him healthy uh shorter pearsall is is a big deal from the standpoint of those guys are really all there is in terms of experience i mean you've got xavier henderson and maybe maybe that's the bright side right maybe yeah. this allows some of those guys and he's, who haven't necessarily and he's shown up so far in in fall camp if, from everything i've been told henderson has really showing up so far well and he needs to right i mean yep. 25 catches isn't going to get the job done with your guy who's basically the third best player coming back and who quite honestly is going to have to be one of the outside receivers if you've, if you've got Pearsall on the slot then you've got shorter and you've got henderson out wide um i guess you could go too wide too tight end but it's not as though you got a ton of experience and and expertise in the tight end position either right i mean dante Sanders is a great story but i think uh you know, I'm I'm concerned if if you're deciding to go with Xanders out there because he's a pass catching threat compared to Xavier Anderson. Right? Yeah, I'd still rather so, see three tight end sets over two tight or three receiver sets over two tight end sets. <laughs> so I, I think I think that's really what it comes down to, right? Is uh, Pearsall and Shorter should know enough that they're able to stay healthy. The question or. Th- they should know enough that it's okay to hold them out to make sure that they're healthy. At the same time, you need them healthy for game week because you're gonna have to get a little bit of a little bit a little bit of camaraderie and a little bit of chemistry with Anthony Richardson. Hopefully, mm-hmm. you've had an opportunity to get that over camp, specifically, you know, spring camp with Justin Shorter and Anthony Richardson. But Pearsall hasn't been here that long. Right. Right. And so being able to get that down, making sure that you're gonna make the right side adjustments when you go out for a for a for a route like those are the things I worry about where Pearsall breaks inside Richardson throws outside and all of a sudden the ball's going the other way because there was a miscommunication between the receiver and the quarterback those are the kinds of things that you can think you know that, that you think might happen if, if you don't have the time to build that camaraderie and build that chemistry so that'd be the concern I think the other concern is just we've known that there are a couple of places where Florida does not have much depth and wide receiver is one of those places and so you know the entire team in general is kind of a uh, 
you know, we've sort of said, oh, yeah, the starters are good enough. Man, if they get injured, that'll be a problem. There's a few places where that's not true, but for the vast majority, it is. So to have two guys at wide receiver who are at least missing time, I think you look at it and go, mm, okay, it'd be better if it'd be better if it was a if it was a defensive back who was missing time. <laughs> like I'm much more sanguine about Marshall missing time. There's somebody who can step into that spot if he happens to re-injure his hamstring or something like that. If Pearsall goes down with any sort of extended injury, I think that really, really hamstrings the offense in a, in a way that's just different than a defensive back going down. Yeah, Ethan White, too. It does sound like I uh, was told a uh, broken nose, maybe. So that's what seems to be the issue there for Ethan White. Uh, should be back versus Utah, so we'll see what happens there uh, with him. Uh, but we, we, we've chronicled how important he is to this offensive line uh, and how kind of the offensive line fell apart last year a bit when he went down with injuries. So uh, definitely ready for him to get back out there, get that starting five offensive line. Uh, They did say, uh, Billy Napier did say in the press conference, Will, that they know who the sixth, seventh, eighth player are on the offensive line. And from what we've seen so far, I think we can figure that out pretty easy right now. Sixth, Josh Braun, which I think we've kind of tabbed him the sixth guy since coming out of spring practice anyway. Then fall camp starts. Richard Garage is banged up a little bit to start fall camp. Austin Barber comes in, fills in pretty nicely there. They shift Tarquin to left tackle to fill in for Garage. Barber there at right tackle since Tarquin slid over. there. I think there's your seventh guy. And then the eighth guy, Richard Leonard, behind uh, Kingsley there at center. So I think that's the identified eight there. Uh, Billy Napier brought up the sixth, seventh, eighth guy in the presser. And I kind of started thinking, I was like, yeah, we know six. We kind of know seven from the start of fall camp. But I believe Richard Leonard, it, Lit, Richie Leonard, is that eighth guy there behind Kingsley. So uh, as we said, we really like this starting five. We like the potential there. It was imperative for to find some depth there. Uh, probably want to get to that nine ten range, but... I think right in here, right now, you start looking at it, Josh Braun can fill in inside left guard, right guard, if it comes down to it. And we already just talked about Austin Barber filling in at tackle a little bit. So it does look like you have some depth depth pieces at guard, tackle, and center right here. I just like that we're more than five. (laughs) (laughs) It's felt, I mean, you know, you already mentioned, and and we've pointed out multiple times, when White went down, things fell apart last year. But even even in the LSU game when Delance was removed and they and they decided to go with a different configuration, um, I think it was in 2020. That's when that sort of fell apart. Um, you know, it's just been years since Florida has had the ability, if there was a false start, to pull somebody out of the game. And I mean, you know, you think about Urban Meyer. There's no way he would have let the team have eight false starts against Kentucky. Right, he would have had like Trey Burton playing left tackle or something <laughs> if, if guys were getting false starts. Like it wouldn't have mattered. He would have said, "I don't care. I'm losing with a guy who's not gonna who's who's not gonna false start." And so that level of discipline and accountability can only come if you've got guys who can actually play the position, right? I mean, if you, if you're just stuck and you don't have anybody else who can go out and actually get the job done, then what do you do? And part of that is development, right? I mean, part of that is on the coaches. At the same time. Part of that is having the guys ready to play. So the fact that they've got six, seven, and eight, and they're comfortable with them, means that a white injury, though critical, is not a just. It's not going to make the offense nosedive, and that's maybe the thing that we we should come out of here with some hope. Again, you know, if what you're hearing is a broken nose, I, I suspect that that's something he's going to be able to play with and play with pretty easily. Um, but obviously, it's it's like the Embiid mask in the NBA because I'm up here in Philly. You know, he goes out looking like the Phantom of the Opera for a couple of weeks there, <laughs> making sure that nothing gets hit again. I don't know whether they've got something like that for football players, but uh, you know, 
I'm sure they'll get White fitted with what they need to get him fitted with, get him out there for the Utah game and have him ready to go. Yeah. Can't be too comfortable banging heads there and <laughs> with a broken nose. Can't, they can't be too comfortable down there. Uh, we are. Last thing on injuries, of course, probably the big one, and we do go to the quarterback position, backup quarterback Jack Miller. Um, Billy Napier did say thumb avulsion fracture, which is the same surgery that Drew Brees had just a couple of years ago. Napier went on to say, so we anticipate him missing. I'm going to say the first two games, we're hopeful we'll get him back for week three. He'll be in a cast in a couple of weeks as that thing grows back together. He'll start the rehab process. So then, Will, with that, you go down the quarterback depth chart and you have Jalen Kitna, Engel, and Brown. Well, <laughs> not a lot of experience there. Uh, there for, for, for the Gators at that uh, quarterback position. And it, it's scary. It was going to be scary anyway. If Anthony Richardson went down, if you had to rely on Jack Miller, but you and I have said there's some games out there we believe Jack Miller can win, but probably not Utah, probably not Kentucky. Does it like he might be back for week three? But yeah, it, the see, season wise, it was imperative Anthony Richardson stay healthy, even more so now. But you know, if Florida to live up to any chance of a double digit win season or anything like that, Richardson's going to have to be healthy regardless. But this just now, the, the margin for error is even slimmer now. You don't want to have to go down the depth chart and throw Kitna, Ingle, Brown in there at any point in the season. No. <laughs> I think you said that right. I mean, you look at it, it's funny. You read the the biography for Ingle, and it's like, oh, he led St. Thomas Aquinas to a to a great record back in 2019. And then you look at he threw 21 passes. <laughs> They're according to Max Preps, 243 yards. So he was getting two or three passes a game. And look, no shame in that. I mean, St. Thomas Aquinas is good is a great program. And so, um, you know, you're not necessarily looking for a walk-on quarterback to be a guy that's going to have some giant statistical profile. But Well, uh, before we go there, I don't know the full, but they uh, saw 67% of his uh, passes completed, nine touchdowns, no interceptions. Yeah, 14 to 21 for 243 yards, so 67% of the year. He had six touchdowns that year. The year before, he was was 9 of 21 for 158 yards, so 43%, and he had three touchdowns. Didn't have any interceptions. So, again, you go look at his huddle tape. It's not bad. I mean, I – uh, there's just not a lot of it, right. right? I mean, which is co- sort of the thing we said about Kyle Trask. The difference is there was more of it for Trask. I think he had like 75 or 80 throws there in high school. And of those throws, he was completing like 77 or 78% of his throws. And Derek King was in front of him there. Um, so that is the one thing I don't know about Engel is who was in front of him there at Aquinas. Um, Ketna, again, 163 of 263, 25-16. So just a hair under 10 yards in attempt. Completed 62% of his throws his senior year. 32 touchdowns, three interceptions. You suspect he'll have an edge when it comes to grasping offensive changes, considering his dad, you know, being somebody who played for just about every team in the NFL, right? I mean, John Kitten played for all over the place. Um, so you would expect he'd have an advantage in terms of being able to get advice about how to pick up different offenses and things like that. And this offense is is really an NFL offense. I mean, we think about it, the 49ers and the Rams are teams that run very similar concepts to the type of stuff that, that Florida is going to be running. And so I think Kitna probably has the advantage both from an experience perspective, but also just from, you know, how he grew up and those sorts of things. But I think what you said is absolutely correct, that this season and its success, um, it, you know, if you say a successful season is nine wins, well, that means Anthony Richardson's healthy the whole year. If a successful season is, ah, we go six and six and, you know, show that we're in all these 
these games and play Georgia tough and stuff like that. Yeah, some of these guys might be able to get you there. At the same time, it's an unknown, especially when you get down to Angle and you get to Brown. Um, I think Brown's high school stats actually look awesome. The question is the quality of competition out there in Oklahoma in that division that he was in. But, but you know, Napier specifically made a point to say that he's a little bit behind mm-hmm. both Angle and Kitna. And so I definitely don't expect we're going to see Brown this year. Um, if we do, we're probably in a lot of trouble. But, you know, look, I mean – it's not inconceivable that Florida's going to have a couple of guys injured at this position this year. I mean, you think about the the 2013 nightmare season under with with Will Muschamp, where you have um, Driscoll go down with the broken angle early, and then you got Tyler Murphy go down with the shoulder injury, and then you got Skyler Morinweg, and it's just you know the offense is absolutely putrid. Wildcat with Kelvin Taylor. <laughs> at various portions of the year. So, I mean, look, worst case scenario, that's something that's in our future. I think, you know. Napier made a point to say he's still going to run Anthony Richardson. Mm-hmm. That they're not going to shy away from that sort of stuff. They're going to shy away from that stuff a little bit, or at least he's going to be instructed to slide and he's going to be instructed to get out of bounds. That and, right? and, and short yardage carries. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'm more inclined to give it to a running back right here instead of Anthony Richardson taking that hit. <laughs> well, you know, that actually is an interesting thing because I did have a thought earlier in the year. I mean, Kitten is not a small dude. And so I did have some thoughts that maybe they might put in some stuff for somebody like Kitna on short yardage where Richardson's out there and can conceivably be a threat. But then, you know, third and one, do you give it to your running backs or do you actually have a quarterback in the Wildcat to get a numbers advantage? You're not going to do any of that stuff, right? Because you definitely can't have your backup quarterback get injured because he's running something with the uh, something cute instead of handing it to the running back. But, you know, I, like you said, I, I think the the reality is is that Florida was always going to be in trouble if Richardson got hurt. I think Jack Miller has a good profile, not a great profile, but I think Miller's profile is better than Kitna's, and I think Kitna's is definitely better than Ingles. Um, and so that's sort of where you're at in terms of the depth chart. And you know, if it gets down to Kitna or Ingle, it's going to be rough sledding there for a little while. But I think you're probably looking at Kitna, who has the both the pedigree and you would think the ability to pick up offenses quickly to the point where he'd be he'd be able to secure that backup role while Miller's out. Yeah, be interesting. You know, uh, initially it does sound like Kyle Ingles doing some good things there. So maybe will you know all those Killer Kyle shirts that were out in 2020, people can bring them back out now. So <laughs> if, if it comes down to that. <laughs> Well, I don't know. It, 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 I, I love Kyle Trask, but uh, he had Kyle Pitts too. So that, that that does make a difference. It does. It does. So a couple more notes from the scrimmage, and then we'll move on to some schedule talk right here. Brenton Cox continues to be a force uh, out, out there, Will. Some people say, are even saying one of, if not the best player on the defense so far uh, in this fall camp. So we'll see uh, where that one ends up going. Tyreek Sapp uh, as well. Uh, doing some big things here uh, in the scrimmage. Yeah, that defensive end rush in. I mean, Florida's got some options there. We, we, we've hinted at it and said it before, uh, but when you keep hearing Tyreek Sapp's name and Justin Boone's name and Princely Yumin uh, Miellen's name, I mean, I think Florida's got some options there. Unproven. Uh, Billy Napier named those guys by name as well in the press conference um, as saying, look, the potential's there, but we have to see what they do in a game like situation. Uh, we've been talking about them. Billy Napier's bringing them up, but it is, you know, what what happens under the lights? What happens when that red helmet on the other side of the line of scrimmage comes, pops you in the face? How are you going to react? So, uh, but it is good that um, the names that we are hearing a bit, Billy Napier is bringing up in the press conference a little bit too at that defensive end position. So uh, another position there, I think uh, Florida's got some good, good work there as far as building some depth. So 
All right, Will, let's go. We'll shift gears, caught up on the field a little bit as we get closer to the season. Probably a good time to re-check that schedule. Some things have happened in fall camp so far uh, for, for some of these teams uh, that Florida has, you know, playing early. Uh, the Kentucky storylines there with uh, running back Christopher Rodriguez, of course, will miss the Florida game. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll, Will and I, of course, will take a big look at Utah next week, uh, do our popular over-unders that are for sure to go wrong. Uh, always fun to go back and look at that. So that'll be next week and uh, Utah as well. But we'll, you know, pop it up right here. Take a look at the Gator schedule. I put the AP rankings uh, besides the teams there. So, Will, of course, the first thing, Florida playing four teams that are ranked in the AP top 25, three teams in the top 10, starting with number seven, Utah. Kentucky is 20th, Georgia third, A&M sixth. So, you know, four teams ranked in the AP poll. And then something that we have brought up before uh, but, you know, I want to do some schedule talk with some Gators Breakdown Plus members as well and got their thoughts on it. And, uh, of course, we brought it up before, Will, when the schedule was released, but Gage, near uh, Wiki, I hope I'm saying his last name right, but only leaving Florida one time before the A&M game is a major positive. So in case you forgot that part about the schedule, of course, you know, three home games to start the season, Utah, Kentucky, South Florida, then you go to Knoxville, the fourth game of the season. Then back home for three straight more games, Eastern Washington, Missouri, LSU. Then you play Georgia in Jacksonville. So you see the first eight games right there for the Gators. All but one in the state of Florida. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's going to be helpful, right? I mean, I think you sort of pencil in the at Knoxville game as the one that maybe tells you uh, tells you a lot about the team, irrespective of what you see in sort of the first two games. Um, the first two games are everybody getting their feet wet, and then the question is, if you lost, can you right the ship? But if you won, can you keep things going, particularly when you go on the road? Georgia game, obviously a neutral site, but still uh, – you know, I, I'm not sure there's a lot of people picking Florida to win that one. Um, and then you got a little bit of a gauntlet at the end there. I mean, Vanderbilt on the road, obviously, is, a, <laughs> is, is something you should expect to be a win. South Carolina, you know, we'll see what happens with Spencer Rattler there. A&M, I think everybody expects to be good. And then Florida State, I think everybody kind of expects to be middle of the road. So, you know, things start to ease up, especially after that A&M. Uh, after that A&M stretch. Well, so there's one of my um, points I want to go to, but it's why while you're there, so I'll, I'll interrupt, but. No matter what happens, Florida has to end the season 3 and 0. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I mean, you have you to hope they end the season three. And they have I don't to. Know they have to. Yes, but. they do. Well, okay. South Carolina, Vanderbilt, <laughs> FSU. You have to win those games. Well, I mean, we would have said that last year or two years ago about Dan Mullen too. So I suppose you're right because uh, Mullen's not around anymore. But uh, that the South Carolina game is going to be interesting. I don't know how good the Gamecocks are going to be. I mean, I think they were pretty good on defense last year. They've replaced their main 
main area of poor play at quarterback. And now they've got Rattler there. If Rattler steps up and plays really, really well. I mean, we've seen quarterbacks can cover a multitude of sins. I'm not ready to pencil that one in yet. I, I'm not sure. You know, you look at the injuries, what we just talked about at quarterback, what we talked about. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yes. Line. I mean, if injuries happen, yes, I, I can back and backtrack. But I'm just saying, for what we know, well, I mean, these teams now, Florida has to end the season three, you know. Well, I mean, we would hope so, but I think you also have to look at, and this is one of the things I think is important when you start looking at these games, right? I think Florida's going to come off that Utah game and they're going to have to play Kentucky. Kentucky's playing Miami of Ohio the week before. So the question is, how banged up is Florida coming in off of Utah? And then Mm -hmm. how tested is Kentucky coming off of Miami of Ohio, right? And that's sort of the question that ends up getting answered there. I think when you go to Tennessee, it's going to be, you know, Tennessee plays Ball State, then they are at Pittsburgh, but Pittsburgh doesn't have Kenny Pickett anymore, and then Akron. Well, if Pittsburgh turns out to be terrible, how tested is Tennessee really when Florida comes into Knoxville? And then again, I think you look at the South Carolina game, and not only the South Carolina schedule, but yeah. you go LSU, off week, Georgia, AM, and now South Carolina, how beat up are you when you come into that game? And, you know, more than any year, a transition year is really one of the spaces where you look at it and say, you know, you may have injuries and the injuries may impact your expectations when you get to a spot. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I absolutely hope that Florida comes in and wins those three games. But again, Carolina's at Vanderbilt and versus Missouri the two weeks before Florida comes in or before they have to head down to Gainesville. And so from the standpoint of who's going to be more beat up and more dinged up heading into that November 12th game, it's going to be the Gators. And so the question will be how much better is Anthony Richardson than Spencer Rattler or vice versa. And I agree with you to say the season is successful. You're going to have to win those three games. But I think to just write off South Carolina the way we're writing off Vanderbilt and Florida State is probably a little bit premature based on what the, uh, you know, b- based on what the schedule says for each of those teams. I mean, I'm not writing them off. I'm just saying th- those are games. There's probably where I said, when I say you have to win them, I'm saying you have to win those games for, you know, some positive momentum. Or as you said, maybe label this a successful season. As Florida is, you know, where there's nine games up to that point, I mean, if Florida's five and four, that gets you to eight and four. If you end the season three and zero, oh, and that's where a lot sure, of people, but, that's where a lot of people are picking Florida. So, but but what if Florida's eight and one coming into that game? Right, then you expect yeah, to win those three. Yeah. But but you know, it, you, we've seen it plenty of times where you'll drop a stupid one after after you've played better than than you thought you would. And look, I mean, I, I think a lot of us are pretty confident that Florida's going to be able to hold up real well against Utah and Kentucky and potentially Tennessee. I mean, there is a definite world where Florida is six and zero going into that LSU game. And, you know, if LSU under Brian Kelly and whoever they decide to play at quarterback is, is struggling, you know, it's conceivable. They're seven and zero heading into that Georgia game. Do I think that's like probable? No, but there's a scenario where they're seven and zero going into there. And if the wheels fall off after a seven and zero start, where you lose to Georgia A and M and South Carolina, and then right the ship with Vanderbilt and Florida State, I'm still calling that a successful season. Now, obviously, if you come out of the Georgia A and M stretch four and five, well, yeah, now you got to win those three games. So, I, I, again, I think a lot of it is just sort of dictated by the opponent. And you know, we talked very early on in this episode about the roller coaster of the season. That's what this is. I mean, you know. Look, if Florida State goes out there and whips, who do they play the first game? LSU, right? But no, they, they, they play. They play. No, they play. They play Duquesne Saturday. 
Oh well, <laughs> okay. I'm not going to make any uh, any judgments on that one. But they do play LSU, right? Yes, Real That's early LSU's on. first game. So if but FSU's second game. All right, so if Florida State goes out, they 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 you know boat race Duquesne and then beat LSU in a close one. Do we all of a sudden look at that one differently, right? And and you know I don't know. I mean that that's the beauty about college football and the beauty about all the coaching changes that are going on is. You know, look, I mean, I, I think there's a little bit of continuity here in, in a few of these places, but, you know, uh, everybody expects Tennessee to take a big jump up, but they were only seven and six last year. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why they're not in the top 25. Kentucky lost two of its starting offensive linemen and its starting running back and its best linebacker on the defense, really the heart of the defense. And everybody's sort of like, ah, well, they'll be able to, they'll be able to replicate the 10 and three season they had last year. Well, I don't know about that. So I I think we're going to see some teams that are up that we, that we expected to be down and some teams that are down that we expected to see up. And the question is going to be, where does Florida sit in that hierarchy? Not necessarily, um, not necessarily, oh, South Carolina should be a penciled in win. I think by the time we get to that South Carolina game, we'll know a lot more about them. And I think quarterback play can offset a lot of that stuff. And it's going to be the same thing with Kentucky. I mean, if Will Levis comes out and plays exactly like he did last year, they are not going 10 and 3. And that's just the reality. So, nope. um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm higher on South Carolina than, than you are, obviously. But uh, I, I look at that one and say, eh, that's one that I think can jump up and bite you if you're not careful. No, I mean, I got them behind Florida in the East, how I picked the SEC media days. I'm not saying I'm down on them. I'm just saying, that to me, you just you have to end the season 3-0 to, to, to consider it a successful season. I mean, I, I do think Florida is better than South Carolina, but I don't think that's a pushover like Vanderbilt. And I do think South Carolina would you know beat FSU by a couple scores as well. So I'm not putting them in that category. I'm just saying, coming off of Georgia, coming off of A&M, those are three games you have to win to feel good about a season, to see it success and, and a successful season. But look, also got the realization, and, I, and I've said this before, you know, when you have a first-year head coach, you, you you probably win a game you're not really supposed to, and you probably lose a game you're not really supposed to. <laughs> so, but when you, when you look at the schedule as a whole, you know, you want to win the games that you're supposed to win, and that might be different for everybody, but ones that are, you know, way in Florida's favor, South Florida, Eastern Washington, Missouri, Vanderbilt. I, I'm throwing Florida State. I think Florida State's terrible, so I'm throwing Florida State in there. So, I mean, that, that's five wins right there. I think you, I, for me, I start at, and then you start looking at the fifty, the closer to the fifty-fifty games. Your Utahs, your Kentuckys, your Tennessees, LSU. You know, Georgia. You're nowhere near fifty-fifty in that game. A and M. You're not going to be fifty-fifty at least right now. Going into Kyle Field, you know. So I mean, how many? Of those games, do you add to the five that I have as a baseline? Where I think, I, mean, I think, I think you start Florida at five wins, and then where do you go from there? So I think that's a good way to break up the schedule. One way I'm looking at it there. So you know, I don't put South Carolina in that USF, Eastern Washington, <laughs> Vanderbilt, FSU territory uh, when I look at it. But you do have to win the games that you're supposed well, to win and end the season three and zero. That's kind of where my parameters are for the schedule. All I know is you're 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 talking about 50-50 games, but Florida. Nick Knudsen for our preview magazine. One of the thing, one of the stats he put in there that just floored me is Florida's six and six against South Carolina in the last twelve meetings. <laughs> so I mean, I, I'm looking at that, going, I don't know. I'm not penciling that. That's a 50-50. It, 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 it is. Everybody's yeah. 
you know, look, I mean, just because Spurrier used to put up 50 on him and, you know, it was a noon game on Jefferson Pilot, like that's not who the Gamecocks are anymore. And quite honestly, that's not who the Gators are anymore. And to get back to that, and I think that's maybe the point. There you go. If Florida is Florida, it's not a little, game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so if Napier really wants to put his stamp on the program, they need to be and, – and here's – like here are my expectations, right? My expectations are you win the games you should, and then you go out and you are competitive in every other game out there, right? And and if it's six and six, if it's nine and three, if it's um, you know ten and two, what, whatever it ends up being at the end of the year, the the point is is that you weren't getting blown off the field by anybody, that you were able to hold your own, and that you pulled a couple of them out. And I, I suspect that that's probably what we'll end up seeing. So if Florida goes out and beats Utah by two touchdowns, hey, obviously faster than we thought we were going to be, but. None of that matters if you go out and lose by two touchdowns to Kentucky the next week, and that's going to be the roller coaster of the season. So if you lose to South Carolina, that yes, that's a game you have to win if you want to say Florida's back. But I don't think we're at the point where we need to say Florida's back. I think what we need to say is this is going to be a roller coaster ride, and if you walk into any game thinking we're good enough to win this, well, you're probably only one injury away from not, not being good <laughs> enough to win this. And, uh, and that's, that's sort of where I'm at for all of these games. Fine, Will. I'll trade Georgia for South Carolina. Jeez. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, wait, Will, uh, I'll throw mine in there. What's your key game for the season, man? What, 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 what key game do you think? Not maybe, not necessarily most important because that's always Georgia, or you could say Utah because it's the opener, or it's Kentucky because of the SEC opener, but what is your key game to the season? I think it's A&M. Um, I, I think you lose to – if you lose to Utah, you can write the ship. Um, even if you start out 0-2, I still think you can write the ship. Um, Georgia, we all kind of expect is going to be a loss. Um, and I, honestly, I expect Florida to perform better against Utah and Kentucky than most people do, I think. Um, so I think the team's going to be pretty high heading into that Georgia game. And that A&M game is an opportunity to sort of shake off, let's say there's a loss to Georgia, shake off that loss and really get a big sort of you know hallmark first year, you know, we're back, stamp, flag in the ground win over an SEC team on the road that everybody thinks is on the rise. And and so I look at that and say AM has been a paper tiger for a really long time. Um, you know, a lot of eight and fours under Jimbo Fisher, certainly not any SEC championships out there at College Station. Even when they were in the big in the Big 12, they weren't necessarily winning the conference all the time. Right. And so does that it's interesting. They're almost this is gonna sound weird. They're almost like the Red Sox of the of the Big Twelve and the SEC, right? Always, always good, always there, sort of sitting in the playoffs, can't win the World Series. Like that's sort of, that's sort of the way I think of Texas AM. Um and look, I, I think it's an opportunity against a team that everybody thinks is gonna be really, really good to go out there and, and announce that you're ready and announce you're ready to take that next step. And that's sort of where I look at it. I just, you know, those two games in a row, everybody's looking at and saying, those are two L's for Florida. And if you, it's almost like when you're playing golf, right? I mean, you get a, if you're a bogey golfer and you get a birdie, all of a sudden you're way ahead of the game. And I think a win over AM sets Florida up to have a really, really successful season. And, you know, this is where that three-game stretch makes a difference, right? Because if you win that game against A&M and then bulldoze South Carolina, Vanderbilt, and Florida State, the level of momentum heading into a bowl game and the way people feel about the program and the way people feel about Napier, and if he can leverage that into another jump in recruiting for that 2024 season, then all of a sudden everything is sort of coming up aces by the time the season ends. So that's the one I sort of point to is, is the AM game. Yeah. It'd be very reminiscent of, uh, Mullins first November in, in 2018. You, you, 
as we said, you, you go through November end in a bowl victory and everything kind of the arrows pointing up, uh, of course. Uh, that, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll talk about ending the season three, you know, man, Florida can end the season four, you know, absolutely. Uh, big, big there. Well, I, I almost think of that AM like the old Miss game in 2015. Mm. I mean, if Greer hadn't, if Greer hadn't have been suspended, that team would have had a much, much better, uh, much better run than they did, right? And so, um, a statement win like that against an SEC rival in the first year, or not rival, but an SEC, an SEC heavyweight in the first, uh, in the first season of a head coach, I think, I think would make a big difference in terms of the way Florida's perceived. Yeah, I'm going to LSU. Um, you're going. That's the only other team in the SEC that has a first-year head coach. That's at the end of a three-game home stretch of Eastern Washington, Missouri, LSU. You know, I don't want to overlook Missouri there the week before LSU, but of course, you know, it should be one of the easier SEC teams. Not that it's very easy in the SEC, but one of the easier teams there. So, um, you know, LSU, Brian Kelly coming in, of course, a, a team that returns only six starters, had to bring in a Boatload of transfers. Jaden Daniels, Garrett Nussmeyer fighting for a starting job there after Miles Brennan leaves uh, last week, leaves the sport. Um, they get the third to Kayshawn Boutte, and we, we all know Florida struggles with LSU the last couple of years. Uh, a game Florida should have won <laughs> the last couple of years uh, going in, a game you were picking Florida to win, especially in 2020. Uh, then last year, Florida should have been able to run the ball up and down LSU, but in turn, it was LSU running the ball up and down on Florida uh, last year. But, well, I mean, historically, that game, you know, if Florida wins that game, and I, I remember you saying this a couple years ago, if Florida beats LSU, it usually means a good season for Florida. And as I said, you're, you're bringing in first-year head coaches here. I mean, LSU may not be the LSU of old, but I think we have seen how that loss the last couple of years can really lead to a disappointing season. Maybe a win, no matter how good they are, kind of you know, ele- elevates to where you're in that topper, you know, topper, wow, I created a new word there, upper part of the SEC. Uh, but, you know, you look at LSU, I'll go even more, you know, they are returning three uh, of three offensive linemen. They returned six starters altogether, but three of them are on the offensive line. But, I mean, 111th in sacks allowed last year. 114th in rushing, so they're bringing back three guys that didn't really do a whole lot last year. Uh, Brad Davis, former Gator coach, uh, was the only holdover offensive line coach there at LSU uh, from the last staff that Brian Kelly held over, uh, but also on defense. They have some good talent up front, B.J. Ojolari, Ali Gay. Uh, Ali Gay only played four games last year, but in those four games, 19 tackles, two and a half sacks. Um, Pass rush would be fine, but Stopping the run. Trenches or LSU really struggling where they used to be pretty strong where you could always count on LSU. Uh, they must stop the run. Uh, you got Jay Ward, Major Burns on the back end. But Corey Raymond's gone, uh, of course. And let's not forget, Will, the performance AR had last year on this defense uh, and the big play after big play after big play. And I found this stat here. LSU allowed 60 plays of 20 yards or more last season. That was good for 116th in the country. So a lot of change going on there. A lot of big plays had by the Gators over LSU last year. A lot of other teams were able to have that big explosive success on LSU last year. So that's my key game. I I dove into them a little bit uh, just because I I knew I'd go into them. And uh, also a big swamp on the Gators Breakdown Plus Discord said, he noticed nobody's talking about LSU much. He thinks that one's tougher than the three of Utah, Kentucky, and Tennessee that everyone mentioned so much. So 
you know, historically, LSU's better than those programs. Uh, not so much the last couple of seasons, uh, but got thinking about it. The first year, coach parallels, and just historically how much that game has meant to Florida. That's my key game right there, Will. Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, the LSU game is always the fulcrum. That is one of those where you sort of, um, you know, a loss there really sets you up for rough a rough time heading into Georgia and A&M and South Carolina since apparently I'm high on them. And then, uh, you know, the, the other thing is LSU's coming into this game. They have at Auburn and then they have Tennessee right before Florida. So they should be the team that's beat up, whereas Florida's coming with, you know, whatever that eagle is. What is that, Eastern Washington? And then Missouri. So That's a, um, Eastern yeah. Washington, the, uh, the fighting Jim McElwain's. Oh, great. So, um, so Napier will take it easy on him then, huh? Cause those guys are buddies, <laughs> but, uh, no. so the, um, the, the point is, is that LSU has a much tougher road, the couple of games coming in before Florida does. So when we talk about depth, which LSU is going to have the same problem, right? I mean, LSU mm-hmm. is going through all the same transition that Florida is all the same depth concerns that Florida has. And there's, uh, this really is a question. I mean, you, you know, we are putting a lot of faith in what, Billy Napier is going to be able to do from a discipline standpoint and what Patrick Tony is going to be able to do to, the, to what is essentially the same defensive players minus a couple of the linebackers who were probably some of the more gifted athletes on the defense last year. But other than that, it's the same general guys who are returning. Um, you know, what's Patrick Tony going to be able to do? So LSU is looking at it the same way, right? They no longer have Farmer Friend heading things up. And so what's 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 yeah, Kelly yeah, and his yeah, fake yeah, accent yeah, going to be able yeah, to do yeah, against yeah, everybody? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so what's Kelly and his fake southern accent gonna be able to do my family these guys <laughs> so look I, I i lsu is normally the game that i would pick um when it comes like uh, if you'd asked me this question for the last five years i would have told you lsu is the key game and quite honestly i think if you looked at that one the result in the florida lsu game kind of did dictate how the season went um you know certainly 2020 that's true and last year that's true um you know, and even in 2019 or 2018 with the Burrow interception that gets returned, that sort of sets the stage for that. And even in 2019, when LSU beat them, it still really did solidify to all of us how good Kyle Trask could be. Um, so you combine all of those different things together. And, yeah, I mean, look, I can't argue with you. I think LSU historically has been sort of the bellwether for Florida's year. but And, and even more so this year, considering that you've got those three in a row there coming up from the October 15th to November 5th. And I, and, and I think I lied. I think going back to your preseason magazine, I think I said Tennessee. Now, now you know you're allowed to change yeah, your mind. Now after, that I think after about ball it, camp and transfers and all that stuff. Yeah, stuff. but I mean, going back to that one, of course, you know, you can't start zero and two in the SEC. It's your first SEC road game. Napier can't lose to Tennessee. <laughs> so there, there's a well, couple ways to look at that one too. Uh, it's funny because what you're really doing is especially considering, I mean, look at Florida's non-conference schedule. I mean, Utah on the front end, Florida State on the back end, irrespective of whether you think Florida State is terrible or not. Florida State is a is traditionally a difficult non-conference team, right? So you got Utah on the front, Florida State on the back, and then you've got a real and then you've got an SEC schedule in between. And so yeah, you got the South Florida and yeah, you got the Eastern Washington, but everything else, you're looking at it going, well, geez, this one could be the, the be the key game, and this one could be the key game. Yeah. And then go look at Clemson's schedule. And so whenever anybody argues with us about recruiting or talent or the ACC or any of that stuff, um, that I think is the thing that you need to look at is go look at Miami's schedule, right? Everybody's going to get excited if they finally win an ACC title this year. Uh, We'll see. I doubt they will. But if they win an ACC title, everybody will get excited. But 
just look at their schedule. I mean, that's that's the reality of the SEC. It's the reality of why it's so hard to win the conference. It's the reality of why it's the best conference in the country and that's why it's so much fun to watch but look miami bethune cookman southern miss now they do have at texas a&m as a uh as a uh as a non-conference game but then middle tennessee boy what a tough first four games <laughs> that is <laughs> then they're, gonna get, they're gonna get their virginia confidence tech. up yeah. then north carolina virginia tech duke virginia florida state georgia tech and then clemson and pitt to end the year so there's no excuse for Florida or to, for Miami to not only ha- to just have one loss heading into that game against Clemson and Pitt or those two games against Clemson and Pitt. And that's the that right there is why we can't pick out the key game here because this is this is the best conference in the country and uh and it's not the same thing for Miami or Clemson or anybody else there in the SEC or the Big 10, right? I mean, it's the same same general thing. Yeah. All right. A couple of thoughts from Twitter because I asked a question there and then we'll sign off here on this episode of Gators Breakdown. Chris Lake 808 says Georgia's really good, but I can never remember this amount of uncertainty in the schedule. Vols don't take a big leap forward and go seven and five. Florida 10 and two if AR plays the whole season and Florida has an average or below average amount of injuries. Uh, let's see. Go through a couple more. Uh, MDN. Uh, MD Nichols says there are 11 winnable games on the schedule. The only one that I feel like is not winnable is Georgia. That doesn't mean they will win 11, but 11 games are winnable for the Gators. Uh, Logan says a lot of toss-up games. Love that we get a quality opponent game one. Going to be fun. Jay Wormsky says I really just want to see the Gators play physical, play hard, play discipline. Play to their ability. Don't beat themselves. The games will sort themselves out. Townsend Six at QB Draw U says, Schedule is tough. Really looking forward to seeing the character of the team and the buy-in in both offense and defensive schemes. Resilience will be the key. Uh, and let's see one more. Johnny Rocket says, I think we have a great opportunity to start really strong. Five or five and one or six and oh with five of the first six games being in the swamp. That could really set us up for a great season. And one more row, F3 Cabbage says it's tough. Floor is 6-6. Ceiling is 9-3. Hopefully we're lucky on the injury front. So, of course, injuries brought up a good bit there, Will. Uh, We know how important that that is. But uh, Gator fans feeling good a couple weeks heading into the season. And I think my camera's messing up a little bit. So, good thing we're signing off here. So, little is it delayed on your end, Will? It's skipping around a little, a little bit. It's it's it, the audio is not though, so that's good. Yeah, good, good. I got to back up audio recording, so we're good there anyway. But man, I don't know what's going on. If for anybody not, for anybody listening to the podcast, Dave is bobbing and weaving <laughs> like he's doing a boxing drill right now, and I can't stop laughing at this. This is, this is, this is awesome. Hey, that's the awesome radio right here. Yeah, the beauty of live production. There we go. <laughs> Uh, Will, what you got coming up this week? Read and reaction. Yeah, so 
SEC preview coming up this week. Um, specifically, the East is where we're going to dive in. I think there's some stats that say Florida is going to be better than some people think they're in the East. Again, um, there's a reason I'm kind of high on South Carolina because of some of the stats I've been looking for, looking at in there. Um, and then uh, the Utah preview is coming up next week. So Monday morning, everybody can expect it. Maybe even Sunday morning, everybody can expect to have that in their box. Um, go over to Read and Reaction. You can sign up for the for the uh, the newsletter there. You'll get notifications when the articles go out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the season. So we're going to have previews every week. We're going to have stand up and holler episodes every, every week. And, uh, you know, we're going to be out there putting out not quite as much content as you, Dave, but we'll be working towards it. <laughs> All good. Yeah. I'll be, uh, back with Will next Monday. Of course, we'll do our ever so popular over unders that, uh, is a lot of fun. Uh, very interesting this year with all the change going on and who we can pick out for some over unders team players, uh, always have fun. Uh, doing that with Will. So, all right, that'll do it for this episode of Gators Breakdown. You got something else, Will? I was just going to say, once we've done the over-unders, make sure you go to Vegas and bet against (laughs) everything we picked because that would have made you a lot of money last few years. (laughs) Uh, Only you, Will. Only you. (laughs) (laughs) The only one that I was able to get was were the sacks. I don't know what that's going to be like anymore. Um, That was the one thing Todd Grantham could do was, 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 was get some sacks at the quarterback. So we'll have to see. How that goes moving forward. Yeah. So it turns out the the that stat is probably not one we need to peg as critical for <laughs> defensive performance, is what you're telling me. I, I would I would say so. All right. So there we go. For Will Miles, I am David Waters. This is Gators Breakdown. Guys and girls out there, thank you for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown. <laughs>